welcome to Dark Fascination, a new podcast dedicated to true crime. Dark Fascination was born out of an interest in psychology, forensic science and the true cost of crime. We take some of the most notorious cases in the world of true crime, sometimes dark, sometimes scary, occasionally heartwarming, always fascinating. And we just try to make some sense and kind of understand what that shit's all about. I'm Mary and this is my co-host. Hi, I'm April. I thought we'd start off with a little bit of uh, true crime news. And so today, uh, which has been kind of a big news day for kind of other reasons, I was searching for some true crime and uh, I thought to myself, like, where is the place where the turmoil and emotion of the nation will be completely disregarded in order for like a super sensationalized story to be right at the top? And that place was, of course, Fox News. Their top story right now, the top, the literal top story right now, in Richmond, California, which is not so far from where we're recording this, a man was arrested on suspicion of murder when he was found attempting to eat his grandma. Okay, first question, where was he found? He was found on the street at like 2pm in the afternoon. That's wild. Standing over his grandma, and the quote from the police is amazing. It's, quote, digging in her flesh. Oh, no. <laughs> Having a snack, like tucking in. Like digging in. Like, oh, dig in. <laughs> that looks delicious. Are you talking like knife and fork, or is he just going like chicken bone style? <laughs> like a chicken wing, like, like a drumstick. Um, I don't know. Aside, aside from the quote digging in, there, there isn't much. Uh, <laughs> paramedics declared uh, 90, 90 year old Ruby Wallach dead at the scene. Um, and then, then the other quote is Dwayne was taken to a hospital for a physical health evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> like, I get that it's important that his physical health is good. I feel like there's an elephant in the room here. One one thing after another, I guess. Like, treat the thing that you might be able to first, and, <laughs> and then dig in. Unintended uh, to. <laughs> but true story. I told this story to one of my colleagues. Yeah, like what's going to happen next? We got like viruses and riots and earthquakes and cannibals. And he was like, "Well, yeah, of course." And he was just like, "You you can definitely get diseases from eating other people." <laughs> Okay, that's a little bit creepy as your first response. Well, that's your first response. Like, literally, not very far from here, a man was eating his grandma at two o'clock in the afternoon on the street. And your response is like, well, yeah, it's pretty dangerous. You know, you can get Creutzfeldt Jakob disease and, you know, other bloodborne diseases from that. That is too specific. I'm going to need the name of the worker <laughs> and which county he lives in or she. <laughs> he lives in Richmond, California. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I was catching up on my text from you and it was like, hey, this thing, this thing, there's cannibals in Richmond and then this other thing. And I'm like, yeah, response, response. I need to know about these cannibals. <laughs> well, that's the reason why my, my whole thing is that we needed a podcast together, because whenever I see anything like that, the first person I want to tell is you. Oh, April needs to know about cannibals in Richmond. Yes. And so like it was just... <laughs> <laughs> I needed to needed to send to you. Yes. So that's our true crime news, like hot off the presses kind of news. 
I was hoping that our true crime news would be a little bit more, more like we'd ease into it a little bit. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to top this. I don't know if 2 p.m. in the afternoon cannibalism can be topped. That's not a challenge. Anyway, I, I kind of thought about this and I was like, the two things that really kicked off my interest in murder were, one, my brother left a copy of a book about Jeffrey Dahmer in our bathroom when I was about nine. There was nothing to read while I was having a bath and instead of like playing with a duck, I like read, read this book and it had like crime scene photos in the middle and all sorts of stuff. So there was that and, um, you know, all roads lead back to cannibals there's a theme for sure a theme today and then the other thing was um this hometown murder so i'm going to talk about the murder of billy joe jenkins on february 15th in 1997 13 year old billy joe jenkins was found bludgeoned to death with an 18 inch tent peg she had been alone in her house painting the patio doors when the attack occurred her foster father, who had been out, found her lifeless body in a, or semi-lifeless body actually, in a pool of blood. So this actually took place in my hometown of Hastings, England, East Sussex. If you're just listening and you were wondering what was up with my voice and, and why I sound like an extra from Oliver Twist, um, I'm British. I don't know why I sound like a child. I am a fully grown adult. I've been in America so long and I hang around with so many Americans, my accent will shift. So <laughs> really sorry about that. I know it really annoys people, but I can't help it. It'll be a fun game. Catch the shift. But here's the thing, like you do it to me really badly because you have that like when you put on your like your southern thing and then I'll pick that up too. So it's bad. So you're probably a terrible person to have a podcast with, but you know, it's really hard to find other people that want to chat about murder for two hours a week. Well, thank you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Catch our shifts. <laughs> Regional accents. Yeah, so hey, okay, I, you've told me you grew up on a coastal town, a small coastal town. Right. In England, obviously. Yeah. Um, but how big, I mean, how, how big are we talking about here? Like is Hastings, is, am I imagining the village green where everyone knows each other or? It's not as small as that. Probably maybe 20,000 people was at the time. I, I think what's interesting about it is it does have that small town feel. And if you've ever watched Broadchurch, the, the British one, with David Tennant and Olivia Coleman, then it's pretty much that town. While you may not know every person on the street, you do know key people. Everybody knew like the people that worked in the bank, the people that worked in the bakery, um, the local headmaster. But you wouldn't kind of know everybody. Yes, I remember my local headmaster well. <laughs> <laughs> it was Dwayne Wallach and no. <laughs> British people have a hard time with scale because we're a small country. <laughs> when I first came to America and I, I just couldn't believe how big stuff was. I was like, what the heck is this store? This store is like larger than my high school. <laughs> I would like take photos of really big jars of olive oil and text them to my friends. <laughs> So Hastings is like a really, in many ways, like a picture perfect town. It has like these like black fishing huts on the beach. There are all these like fishing boats. There are two like cliffs in Hastings made of like kind of white chalk. You can take a molecular railway up them. You can like eat really great fish and chips. It's like, it definitely has that kind of like British tourist kind of feel to it. 
Um, and I didn't know Billy Joe because essentially there were like two schools or three schools you could go to. And I went to a kind of Catholic um, high school, secondary school, and she went to a, a girls' school. Um, so the two major schools in town, high schools, were a girls' school and a boys' school, and she went to the girls' school, Helenwood, where her foster father was also a teacher. So Billy didn't really have a very easy start in life. Her dad was in prison. Her mother was really unable to raise her alone. And so she ended up putting her daughter up for adoption. So at the age of eight, Bully Joe found a home with the Jenkins family. Her foster family, Sean, Sean and Lois, were like super excited because she like shared their surname and they were like, it's meant to be, we're still Jenkinses, Jenkinses. And so Jenkins rings. And so she moved from London to Hastings. Um and she attended this this girls' school, Helenswood, and she seemed to be living a, a really normal life, like a happy life. She had two sisters, foster sisters, and her foster parents. I, I will say Billy's family, like the Jenkins, like they were much wealthier than my family. But I'm talking about like, you know, small town Hastings wealthy, not like not actual wealthy, but like they had a nice house, like a, a Victorian house with like a nice garden and like but she did live across from like the a huge park in Hastings called Alexandra Park. And the thing about this park is that like I don't remember anything good happening in it. Oh. And I think particularly in the 90s, like, it was kind of like where you would take things, you know, where you would take booze and drink in it. That kind of park. No. Yeah, and I wouldn't, it was really big. So it was kind of like Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. It wasn't as big as that, obviously. But it was it was large, like, with, with multiple lakes, a fishing lake. Like, we're not talking about, like, a teeny park. We're talking about a big park. Okay. And we're talking about a town with, like, shit all to do, like, nothing. And so, like, we as teenagers would kind of, like, go and meet in there. And it, and it could be sketchy. It could definitely be sketchy. Like, Hastings does have, like, an undercurrent of kind of, like, drugs. And it it's definitely, an air, like, a depressed area. I mean, that's why we live there. Because, like, house prices were really, like... Find those silver lines. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do when you're raising ungrateful children in the 80s and 90s. Um... So on the day Billy Joe was murdered, Lois, who was her foster mother, took two of their daughters, Maya and Esther, out for a walk along the seafront. Uh, Sean stayed home with Annie, the one of the children who was cleaning a utility room, and Billy Joe was painting the outside of a window frame um, at the back of the house. Around 3 p.m., Sean and Annie left the house in his car to pick up their other daughter. Uh, Lottie from a clarinet lesson. These guys are rich. I mean, they're having clarinet lessons. Like, there was no clarinet lessons in my house. You could drum on a pot. <laughs> and then take it to the park and maybe bust for a while. And... <laughs> maybe brew some toilet wine in it. I don't know. <laughs> but there was definitely none of this, like, clarinet lessons of an afternoon. Anyway, when the three arrived back at the house, Sean went inside for approximately three minutes before he returned to the car where Annie and Lottie were waiting and then said they were going to go to the DIY store to pick up some white spirit because Billy Joe had splashed some paint. However, when the three arrived at the store, Sean discovered that he had no money. He didn't have his wallet and he left. So he just drove around the neighbourhood for a while. Okay. 
did he, did he ever say like why he was just driving around no he just drove around and a seven minute journey took around 15 to 20 minutes what's really interesting about this is that when they asked him about it he had no real understanding of like why he'd gone to the store why he had no money why he circled the neighborhood twice to get back we're not talking about a town with traffic we're talking about like empty streets a park there's there's no reason for him to have done that and also what's interesting and we'll talk about a little bit later is during the 999 call that he makes when he finds Billy Joe, he tells him he's been gone twice as long as that, that he's been gone for 45 minutes. They arrive back at the house, they get out of the car, and Lottie, one of the girls, finds her Billy Joe lying in a pool of blood outside the window she'd been painting. So she screams for her dad, who ushers his other daughters in their playroom. So he kind of like goes, you guys get in here. And then he calls an ambulance. He later testifies in court that he goes over to Billy Joe, touches her shoulder, and a bubble of blood comes out of her nose. So the police receive a call at 3.38. And remember, they left at 3. And he says, my daughter's fallen, or she's got head injuries. There's blood everywhere, and she's on the floor. What had actually happened is that um, Billy Joe had been struck on the head around 10 times. She'd been bludgeoned with this 18-inch long, one-and-a-half-pound tent peg that was lying in their garden. Also, Rich, they they could camp. We couldn't afford that. Uh, The tent spoke was originally thought to have been taken from the coal shed roof, which is something you have in the UK, which is like, in times when you kind of heated your houses with coal, um, a way to get cold into your basement. Before the ambulance arrives, he calls a neighbour, Denise Franklin, for help. And she's the one that told him the paramedics were, were needed. So he makes a second 99 call. They ask him whether Billy Joe is breathing. And he replies, I can't say. And so they kind of, the, during the 99 call, he's told to feel for a pulse, put her in the recovery position. Um, but when the ambulance crew arrives, she's lying on her front on the patio. Hmm. And the police are like, is she breathing? And she and he's like, I don't know, I've not looked. That's strange. When they played these two 999 calls, and, and 999 is 911 um, in England, it, they go through all of the life-saving measures that, you know, they they tell Mr. Jenkins in these calls. So they're like feel for a pulse, put her in the recovery position, do all this stuff. And he's not done any of that. His neighbour, Denise Franklin, who he calls over, she placed a towel around Billy's head because she's bleeding. And then when she does, she became aware of part of of a bin liner, like a trash bag, in Billy's nose. And she pulls the bin liner out and, like, kind of blood comes out. That's so horrifying. How did he have the... The blood bubble then. So that becomes like really important at trial later. He later says that after this, he crouches down next to Billy. He feels her neck. He became aware that her forehead is misshapen. Her eye is swollen. And that's when he says he noticed a bubble from her nose and kind of realized she was alive. He then does a really odd thing. He tries to get the blood off his hands and then he goes inside and he washes his hands. That's so strange. Why wouldn't you stay with her and do any of the stuff the paramedics said? 
Exactly. He says that she felt warm, that he was getting frantic because the ambulance had not arrived. Really, in conclusion, the prosecution during his trial, and he goes to trial for this, they they really kind of make a big deal of the fact that he doesn't try any life-saving measures on her, that he does a load of odd stuff, you know, calling his neighbour, he takes time to, like, hide his children, he washes his hands, all the while, while, like, Billy Joe is still alive, lying there on the ground. So strange. I mean, I understand, like, a panic response in some degree, but you have people telling you how to help, and he's doing almost everything i mean in reality he's doing everything but helping her you can't really tell how people react to certain situations because they could be in a panic but i think when you're talking about like there's another adult here that adult's trying to do everything they can i don't know who who it would occur to to kind of like wash their hands that's the oddest bit to me they start to kind of look into Sean. They dig into his background. They discover he, in order to get his job at the school, um, which was was the boys' school that's kind of associated with the girls' school that she went to, they discovered he'd lied on his resume. He'd exaggerated his academic qualifications. He was afraid of getting out, of getting found out. It's also noted that several people including Mrs. Jenkins, says that she never believed that his behaviour was, quote, normal. He had a violent temper. It led to angry outbursts. If he felt his control in particular was being challenged. Did they ever say violent or just kind of like yelling? And There's one documented instance of him being on kind of like a group holiday with some other families and um, him being annoyed at Billy Joe about something and him kicking her. Oh. Uh, I know, right? Just like a casual kick to your daughter. That seems terrible. Like, hey. There were other people, other families around. Pretty, pretty upset to do that in front of, to do that at all, obviously, but and and in front of other people. Yeah, because it kind of makes me think like how normalized was like casual abuse. Mm, That's a good point, yeah. To the point where he didn't even think twice about just kicking somebody. Never occurred to me just like kick my child right yeah that's good and so like i thought that was kind of a really odd thing to do so the police also noted that sean was like particularly erratic when he was questioned and on the 24th of february so kind of like 10 days later he was arrested on suspicion of murder and then he was charged with murder on the 14th of march and then he went to trial It really hinged around forensic examination of his clothing. So when they examined his clothing, they found spots of white substance as well as blood, and it was sent for blood splatter analysis. They found, I think it was something like 428 microscopic splatters of Billy Joe's blood on the sleeves and chest area of his top and his trouser legs. His argument, or the defense's argument, was that she had breathed those spots of blood on him with her dying breaths. While the prosecution argued that her breathing was likely to have been weak and incapable of causing such wide-ranging spots on his clothes. 
like a spray like that basically to get a microscopic like spray almost and they kind of centered around like his his opportunity they really felt like he potentially had done it in those three minutes when the when his daughters were in the car and he was out about with billy joe there was kind of all this argument of like when he could have done it how quickly he could have done it obviously the defense argued that like three minutes would that be enough time to do what was done what would be the reasoning for it prosecution is more like came home maybe he didn't like the way she painted or maybe he was annoyed with her about something else it doesn't take that long to just like whack somebody also um claimed that a, a mark on her cheek was consistent with the heel of his shoe but they weren't able to draw a kind of strong conclusion based on like the the strength of the blood splatter analysis he was convicted on july 2nd 1998 and he was sentenced to life imprisonment everyone at the time, like particularly in my town, was like, clearly he did it. He's a liar. He lies about stuff. Victor already. Kind of a creepy guy in many ways, or some people said he was, was after the fact. This is horrible. We've had the murder of a teenager in our town. That's terrible. Then he makes an appeal. And his appeal goes to the court of appeal and... The second appeal in 2004 is successful. And in 2006, what? Sean Jenkins is acquitted of the murder and let go. No. Even at the time, we were like, what the fuck? How was this possible? Like, who had motive? Who would do this? But he was literally acquitted. And I started to kind of look at the blood splatter analysis stuff. Bladder analysis was really in invented by one man. His name was Herbert McDonald, and he really kind of drove a lot of this blood splatter analysis. And it, it started in kind of Texas in kind of the 80s. He would like turn up to these trials with this array of props, a medicine dropper, and a vial of his own blood, and he would dip droppers into blood and he would get q-tips and he would splatter them in front of juries bill nive <laughs> i can't do a bill nive impression i wish i could that would have been so good but he was just i have a science <laughs> moment and he would just splatter this blood in the courtroom that's exactly what he said by the way and uh people would laugh it up and juries would laugh it up and they were yeah totally and I honestly didn't really know until I started this podcast. It's bunk. <laughs> what? There's no like definitive science behind it? <laughs> no, it's just really more intuitive. It's less impressive. <laughs> right, it's much less impressive. What blood splatter analysis can sort of tell you is not very much. And it's very much opinion based. It is definitely 100% not a science. Is it kind of like if I lick my finger and hold it up to the wind and then I say like, it's coming from an easterly, this must be a northern gale kind of thing? I, I think that's more accurate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're in trouble here. I think honestly that you, you would be a better expert witness. But what McDonald did is he taught blood splatter analysis to like hundreds of students. Those taught blood splatter analysis to like hundreds more. And then it became like a thing that people really did. It, in 1957, K 
California is the first state to accept blood stain pattern analysis as reliable enough to be admitted to trial. And it really starts to spread over the next 45 years. At least 36 more states, they decide that blood stain pattern analysis is reliable enough, it can go to trial. And then soon it's like all over America, it comes to Europe, and and people really start to believe that this, this is a science. Yeah, I mean, it was on TV. Not that person from CSI. Like, Dexter is a blood... Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, that's, that's, that's the whole show. Like, that whole show is, like, built on my butt's I feel betrayed by television, my one friend. <laughs> when they really kind of examine the evidence for Sean Jenkins, like, the, the, the only evidence they have was blood spire analysis. They didn't really have a definitive motive. He did have opportunity, but the opportunity window was pretty narrow. People around, like, from their point of view, like, Lois, his ex-wife in particular, believes that he's guilty. The townspeople, (laughs) one collective (laughs) townspeople, uh, myself being one of them, you know, I think most of us, and and I remember my mother in particular, really believed that he was guilty. But he's a free man. He's remarried. He does no longer lives in Hastings. And he's just going on with his life. Does he see his other kids? I don't believe he has other kids. He's older now. Okay, yeah. He had originally was like trying to like run for office and stuff, but I don't think he's doing that post murder conviction. I know some people are able to get away with it, but I'm not sure he had the charm. Yeah, I'm holding back jokes about his slogans of like beating the competition and things. That would just be not tasteful at all. That would be super distasteful. Um, but we should put that on a t shirt. <laughs> so let's just assume that. You know, Sean Jenkins, the man who gave no life-saving efforts to his own foster daughter as she was lying, bleeding to death. Who could it be? There are two kind of alternative suspects that it could be. One was a mentally ill man uh, who kind of lived in the area dubbed Mr. B. Multiple eyewitnesses saw him in the area on the afternoon of the murder. He sat on a bench near the Jenkins' home. And what's interesting about Mr. B is... He had what has been described as a fetish for plastic bags. Um, a fetish? Not like he just keeps a load inside a big one in one of the drawers in his kitchen. He like... Well, then I have a fetish. <laughs> I know. He like carried them around with him. He like sniffed them. Sniffed them? Rubbed them on himself. Is Are they like glue inside or something or paint or is it really just the plastic bags themselves no i think it was like you know how cats really love like crinkly bags i think it was like that oh okay well there you go mr b (laughs) he kind of sounds like a cat it's kind of like a cat name mr b yeah that would be a cute cat's name mr b (laughs) they thought he might be involved because um a piece of trash bag was found up billy joe's nose by the neighbor they took Mr. B into custody, but because of his mental illness, like it was really difficult for him to be questioned. But there was no forensic evidence found on him at all. And we're talking about like a savage being here. Um, and he was homeless. He didn't have other clothes. Yeah. So it wasn't like he could just change. Uh, and so he was kind of ruled out quickly. The family had said they were concerned about prowlers and break-ins in the area previous to Billy Joe's murders. Now I'm going to get personal here. We lived at the top of the hill and Billy Joe lived at the bottom of the hill. At, around this time, Billy Joe and I are like 
very similar in ages. I used to take two trains and sometimes a bus to get to school and back because I went to this like nice Catholic school in another town. Nice, lol. It was a heck of a commute, actually. I think that's why I hate commuting so much uh, because I had to do it all the time. I used to get off at this like, not the main Hastings train station, but a smaller train station near my parents' house. It was uh, not safe. I like am surprised I survived. And around this time, and I and I've tried to find like some information on it and I've searched it or whatever. But I remember a couple of times being followed off the train. Um and it was kind of like the train was like in a ravine, like the station, no houses around, and you had to kind of walk up like a long slope to kind of get out, and it was really, really quiet. So basically it was like murder central, it was like the most dangerous place, and it wasn't very highly trafficked and I remember literally around this time and I don't know if it was a year before the year after I was followed off the train by somebody and it was very suspicious in how they followed me off the train and basically did that thing that like gross guys do where he's just like pretends to take a pee and then shows you his poor excuse for a manhood oh I know it's fine I'm okay But there was also like a series of kind of rapes around that time. So what I'm saying to you, could it have been a random person, a random prowler or something? Well, I think it would be difficult because of the way her garden was and who you could see. It was definitely not a town where that shit didn't happen. Okay. Wait, that's a thing where guys pretend to pee and then they... I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it's... uh, They're like, oh, don't look. And you're like, and then they're like, (laughs) they make that sound. Is that part? Yeah, they make that sound. Mm, That's horrifying. Or or it's more of a boing. (laughs) (laughs) That might be, you know, I I could see why your attention would be drawn. You Uh, know, when like a, when you're at the fishmonger and they get a trout and they just like slap it and there's that (laughs) sound. that. That is graphic and sounds painful. Um, all, all joking aside though, that's horrible. You were, were you 13-ish, 14, what? 13-ish, I was somewhere between 12 and 14. And you had to take, you had to go into this sea part of town and, and all the time and people know like the stops and stuff, that's... Well, I lived in this, <laughs> well, I li- well, I lived there. <laughs> like I said, housing prices were not a problem. Yeah. Train stations are not like a cool place. You know, that's not where you want your kids hanging out. So the main train station in the middle of town was like totally a normal train station with like guards and like ticket booths and other stuff. The train station I got off at, which is closer to, it's is probably about equidistant between like my, well, closer to my house, but between Billy Joe's house and mine. And there were two exits, one at like one platform and you kind of went up a massive slope up the hill and it would like end up on my street. And then the other one, like went the other way and you would end up kind of in the nicer part of town with like the Victorian-ish houses, right? And so like, it wasn't like hecka far, like in terms of kind of like the distance and everything that was happening. But two lifetimes apart. Two worlds apart, the clarinet lessons and <laughs> going camping. And we had TV as a babysitter and cannibal books in our bathroom to read. I thought it was kind of an interesting one um, around the kind of, you know, how they felt. And a family friend had said that the Jenkins um, 
had been in fear of a prowler uh, and that four days before the murder, Sean had shown him all the measures the family had taken to protect themselves um, and they planned to move because of their fears. Now, this sounds like somebody setting up an alibi. Yeah. Like, who's like, check out my security system? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm so worried about prowlers. I'm going to move prowlers that might prowl in my backyard and bludgeon people with Ted. I mean, anything they find. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> like, everything about it seemed so suspicious. Yeah, completely. In just terms of like, yeah, I kind of get that it wasn't the safest town, but also at the same time, like, you know, if you're literally telling like weird family friends that like that's happening and like that's that's bonkers and truly isn't going to happen. Billy Joe mentioned to friends that she was being stalked by a man in a leather jacket. What well, stalked? Like, did they ever see this guy, this leather jacket? I mean, were people, was like leather jackets like popular around the time or was this like, did he stand up with Michael Jackson? What, in the 90s? Yeah. I mean, I, I think ultimately it depends on what kind of leather jacket it was. Like, well, was it like a red? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I'm imagining people in lots of tweed. And school fashion. <laughs> like, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> we had coats. sweaters and coats but not like leather jackets I mean maybe I guess I'm asking like did this guy stand out or was it just that that was the one thing she had he was just so normal looking otherwise or was it Michael Jackson my brother wore a leather jacket (laughs) but like that's not his most distinguishing (laughs) it's not his most distinguishing feature so they would have been able to find him much quicker yeah I, uh, I do think leather jackets were a thing uh, because I remember around this time, my uh, this is a, this is a precious memory that's just come to me as we've talked about this. That my parents went out one day and came back, and they had matching leather jackets that they bought themselves. So they were like brown, <laughs> like so. Yeah, I think that was the thing that happened. That people bought matching clothes, or that they wore leather jackets. <laughs> that people wore leather jackets. That enough people wore leather jackets that my parents thought it was acceptable to wear leather jackets. Okay, I feel like answered all my questions about the leather jacket (laughs) and i think when we talk about leather jackets i think we talk about kind of like a shit brown one not like an awesome like red one with spangles on it motorcycle jacket or something yeah maybe yeah that's kind of what my brother wore oh oh shit yeah no actually you're right a lot of people wore motorcycle leather jackets because it's a bit of a biker town ah okay so if it was a motorcycle one that would have been much more common that frames it up for me nicely Okay, so it could have been a prowler, could have been a man in a leather jacket, could have been a man that says, hey, I need to pee, and then goes, it probably wasn't this man with a fetish for plastic bags because he probably wasn't organised enough to do it. So the last option is uh, the serial rapist known as the M25 rapist, Antonio Emilia who I am not unconvinced is the man that followed me off the train, by the way. Oof. I wish I had a description of what he's wearing because I still remember what the man off the train was wearing because I knew when I got off the train, he did this thing where there are two ways he can go like over the bridge or down towards the nice houses. And he kind of just stood there being all like, oh, which way should I go before watching which way I went. So I knew it was going to be bad. Anyway, it's fine. 
he had a girlfriend that lived two miles from the Jenkins home and he was known to stalk his victims and it could have been the prowler, which I don't think exists, um, that the family had. It said here that Emelia also wore a leather jacket similar to the one Billy Joe said her stalker wore, but it didn't describe it. <laughs> I know, it's like everything about these details are the worst. Like, I need to know what the jacket was. Like, yeah. I, I need to know badly. He liked to beat his victims that resisted, and he had also placed a black plastic bag over the head of another victim. <gasps> he had also told one victim that 13 was a lovely age. Can you That's imagine that? That just bag. Everything about that made me so sad that, like, he told one of his victims that 13 was a lovely age. Antonio Amelia was, like, a total fucking scumbag. He was sent to Borstal at the age of 15. He was just terrible. Uh, he began, he was like, in, in the 80s, he was like an armed robber. Then he started to rape people. His first victim was a woman named Sheila Janowskowitz. Um, and then after his release from prison in 1996, you know, because it was the freaking 80s, so you only get a few years for rape, he built a new life uh, on the south uh, coast and so he was just kind of living there and trying to find work particularly on on the railways where my dad sometimes worked apparently his colleagues recalled that he would brag to them about his use of sex workers although it later emerged that some of the stories might actually have been rape victims oh so disgusting it's bad enough talking to your colleagues about what they did at the weekend. <laughs> like, oh, that sounds great. You visited your grandma? Yeah, cool. Oh, you painted your drawing room? Like, oh, nice. Yeah, what color did you do it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've heard that's really cool. Like, that's bad enough. <laughs> like, imagine if they were like, oh, yeah, I met this girl at the weekend. Yeah, she was great. And it was either either sex workers or, you know, at least they're in control of what's happening uh, or 13 year old rape victims sounds like some good chit chat but the other thing that really bothers me about these colleagues is that shortly before Melia's arrest for like the seven rapes they knew about he has seen him at St Pancreas railway station in London and he had been boasting that he went with this young girl and she looked only about 12 like I'm no. sorry right and like it turned out a few days earlier, he had driven to Birmingham and kidnapped a 10-year-old girl before put at knife point and put her through a five-hour ordeal in his car. That's just disgusting on every level. Right, exactly. But what's so awful about that is the colleague is just like, oh, yeah, like, oh, yeah. Like, what? It's like, I mean, I'm sorry, but if you said anything remotely like that to me, I'd be like, uh, hello, police. Yeah, they didn't report him or, like, get him kicked off the work site or anything look into his past i mean he's clearly like a creepy motherfucker absolutely and like another colleague and i'm i'm seriously like picturing this workplace as like somewhere that needs to be the worst it needs to be like bombed from orbit (laughs) another colleague was talking to me he had no idea that you know this guy was a rapist um but obviously it was it was everywhere at the time that you know there was this kind of serial rapist he told him that the little girl, this 10-year-old girl that was involved, quote, might have deserved it. Wow. And it hurt my soul. What a 
piece of garbage, non-human being. Everything about that just, you know, you need to die in a painful fire. It is awful. Yeah, and who are th- these colleagues are just blowing my mind. That they're just like, well, cool story, bro. I'm going to head over lunch. We talk about like bad workplace culture, people being allowed to stay stuff, men in particular, and the, you know, the way they refer to women in the workplace and things like that. And then we're literally talking about a group of people who like think it's okay and acceptable to say to a colleague or to hear from a colleague, oh, look, this girl's so awesome. Like I went with this girl, she looked like she was 12. And like, they all thought that was fine. I don't even know how you get through that. How do you go home and just la la la, everything's fine. Especially when this is everywhere. The M25 rapist was like a thing. Yeah, I can't even imagine the mindset. Exactly. So luckily he was arrested, organ and head. Obviously there's a question about whether or not he progressed. Like clearly Amelia is like the scumbag of the highest order. I don't think there's anyone who wouldn't say that he couldn't go further than what he was doing he obviously had a horrible disdain for women he obviously liked young women particularly children uh he was obviously like a scumbag and and as i said the train station he worked on the railways was not that far away from our houses and you know i I think when you work on the railways you just get free rail travel not that that would be a factor Like, sorry, like, this would be a great job. I get free rail travel. I can go around murdering people. Stalking my victims. Yeah, I can, you know, I'm going to make the stalking as efficient as possible. I don't want to have to pay for the bus. The last thing I want to talk about in this case, and I know I've been going on about it, is the man in the dining room. Sean revealed in an interview that he believes he came face to face with his daughter's true killer. He said... He thought he saw a man who was in the family's dining room that emerged in the hallway and told him she's going to be okay. And he said that he wore a dark navy or possibly dark olive overcoat and was smartly dressed. I could see he was wearing a tie. He had highly polished shoes. It was this fact that reassured me he was a police officer. Did police officers dress anything like that? I mean, is this like a detective or something? You do wear plain clothes. They they call them plain clothes officers when they're like a detective or whatever. The shoe bit. I don't think British police men have had shiny shoes since Pride and Prejudice days. Yeah, these are such specific details. And yet he's like, I have no idea if my daughter's breathing. And I don't remember what I did or why I did anything that day. But this dude had super highly polished shoes. So I remember logically thinking he's probably a police officer and it's totally normal for him to be here. I drove to the store to get something, but I didn't have my wallet. And then I drove around in circles for ages for no reason. I don't know why, but also this, I can describe exactly how this man is dressed. What's super weird about this man in the dining room, man in the hallway, is that why wouldn't he have been covered in blood? Yes, exactly. That doesn't make any sense. There were two people that had blood on them. One was Billy, Joe herself, and one was Sean Jenkins. I see where there could be room, but it just seems like it was Sean. I I think with a lot of this stuff, it's like kind of like the most obvious answer is the truth. And the most obvious answer is it isn't 
a random man with a fetish for plastic bags or like a shiny shoed ghost policeman or the M25 rapist, although that is a slightly more reasonable one, or this mythical prowler and it was probably just short. Kind of seems that way. But at the same time, there's not that much evidence to, to convict him. And his window for doing it was really, really, really small. So to me, there's a ton of reasonable doubt there. But at the same time, he's also a scumbag that like lied about his resume and kicked his foster daughter for no reason and sounds like a bit like a total narcissist. So where do we land on this one? We land with Billy Joe's murder being a cold case. There's no justice for this poor girl who would have been 37 this year, grown up with her own life and stuff like that. And I always feel a kind of connection to her. And, you know, I do think about her not unoften and, and you know, two lives going in different directions and just how shit that was. That, you know, she had had a really, like, difficult childhood, that her dad was in jail, her mum couldn't cope looking after her, you know, which is, you know, reasonable. That would be a really hard situation. And that she had been given up for foster care and that she thought she'd found a life with a, with a nice middle-class family, with clarinet lessons and sisters that she apparently really loved and cared about. But at the same time, it just, you know, she only gets to be 13 years old and 13 is nothing. Like, you're a baby and you're an idiot. Like, you haven't learned anything about the world and you have so much more to, like, know and give and, you know, like, go out there and do stuff. And she never got the chance to do any of that. And there's no real motive for it. It's either a random attack, and she was not sexually assaulted, so it was either a random bludgeoning or family that was supposed to take care of it really really let her down and either way that's just a tragedy shockingly horrible poor girl so that is my bummer of a case number one you did a good job yeah i really liked uh you know this story uh getting the details of the area um that i would i don't think i'd be able to get from just reading a news story um, and then this is a particularly uh, interesting case due to the possibilities. And um, yeah, I enjoyed hearing about it. Awesome. I hope all of our listeners out there, i.e., you know, people that we know, because <laughs> who else is going <laughs> to listen to us, uh, enjoyed it too. If you want more information, please go to darkfascination.com. Like, subscribe, leave a rating. Uh, it's always really helpful. I would love to hear about your hometown murder. Like if you have one like this, one you feel really strongly about or your uh, gateway drug, um, your gateway drug murder or any suggestions you have. So please contact us um, at darkfascination.com and give us all that information and, and we will shout you out and kind of do something on a future pod. Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed it. What are we going to do next week? Oh, good question. Question. Do we are do you already have one teed up or No, I have something teed up, but like it is the it's the most horrific, like horrible thing. But uh, so okay, so 
we let's, get a little sneak peek let's, here? Let's, 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 let's geek out a little bit. Okay. So as everyone knows, I'm British. So I was like, I don't feel like a lot of the British murders get get the full you know, treatment on, on a lot of these podcasts because, you know, like it's, it's a different place. Like we don't have guns. Like tea is a thing. There's like a there's a different psychology. Like an alien we're, landscape. We're a different type of people. And uh, so what I really kind of wanted to do was do some British ones. And so I kind of looked at kind of several, but the the one I think that like it feels so incredibly iconic to me is the is the Moors murderers. Yes, I've heard a little bit about this, but I don't know all the details. The Moors murders were carried out by Ian Brady and, and Myra Hindley in the in the sixties um, in and around Manchester, England. Um, uh, but unfortunately, they you know, unfortunately, obviously, but they they really focused on children, um, and they killed five five children that, that they know of, and you know they were. And what's pretty interesting about them is that they're like a team. Um, it's Ian Huntley, uh, sorry, not Ian Huntley, that's someone else, uh, who's also a shitbag, uh, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. And I remember Myra Hindley a lot in particular. One, because like, I was like, wait, a woman can do that? Like, women shouldn't do that. Um, although, you know, like, I, I don't know if that had ever happened before. Also, because she has the world's best hair. Oh yeah, I think I, I think I saw um, black and white picture, and it almost was it like a Marilyn Monroe type cut. Yeah, it's like this kind of bouffant thing mushroom that sits on top of her head. <laughs> Sounds lovely. <laughs> uh, so I thought I would do that at some point, um, but you know, uh, I, there's, a, there's there's always more murders. That's the good thing about a murder podcast. The good thing, the tragic thing, but our dark fascination super darkly fascinated by the reasons why you would for instance go to a store with no money and then drive around your neighborhood for no reason and then ignore the advice of a 999 operator um it could happen to anyone it could happen to you oh no not me <laughs> i'm not british it's true you're not british <laughs> You would be much, much more repressed. Go have a palate cleanser, uh, you know, dig into your dinner. <laughs> <laughs>